Nova Audio presents Volume 6 of The Master Key Chapter 16 Shipwrecked Mariners Ample proof of Rob's careless and restless nature having been frankly placed before the reader in these pages, you will doubtless be surprised when I relate that during the next few hours our young gentleman suffered from a severe attack of homesickness, becoming as gloomy and unhappy in its duration as ever a homesick boy could be. It may have been because he was just then cut off from all his fellow creatures, and even from the world itself. It may have been because he was satiated with marvels, and with the almost absolute control over the powers which the demon had conferred upon him. Or it may have been because he was young and reared a hearty, healthy American boy, with a disposition to battle openly with the world, and take his chances equally with his fellows, rather than be placed in such an exclusive position that no one could hope successfully to oppose him. Perhaps he himself did not know what gave him this horrible attack of the blues, but the truth is he took out his handkerchief and cried like a baby from very loneliness and misery. There was no one to see him, thank goodness, and the tears gave him considerable relief. He dried his eyes, made an honest struggle to regain his cheerfulness, and then muttered to himself, If I stay here like an air bubble in the sky, I shall certainly go crazy. I suppose there's nothing but water to look at down below, but if I could only sight a ship or even a fish jump, it would do me no end of good. Thereupon he descended until, as the ocean's surface came nearer and nearer, he discovered a tiny island lying almost directly underneath him. It was hardly big enough to make a dot on the biggest map, but a clump of trees grew in the central portion, while around the edges were jagged rocks protecting a sandy beach and a stretch of flower-strewn upland leading to the trees. It looked beautiful from Rob's elevated position, and his spirits brightened at once. "'I'll drop down and pick a bouquet!' he exclaimed, and a few moments later his feet touched the firm earth of the island. But before he could gather a dozen of the brilliant flowers, a glad shout reached his ears, and looking up he saw two men running toward him from the trees. They were dressed in sailor fashion, but their clothes were reduced to rags and scarcely hung to their brown, skinny bodies. As they advanced, they waved their arms wildly in the air and cried in joyful tones, A boat! A boat! Rob stared at them wonderingly and had much ado to prevent the poor fellows from hugging him outright. So great was their joy at his appearance. One of them rolled upon the ground laughing and crying by turns, while the other danced and cut capers, until he became so exhausted he sank down breathless beside his comrade. "'How did you come here?' then inquired the boy in pitying tones. "'We're shipwrecked sailors from the bark Cynthia Jane, which went down here a month ago,' answered the smallest and thinnest of the two. "'We escaped by clinging to a bit of wreckage and floated to this island.' Well, we have been nearly starved to death. Indeed, we now have eaten everything on the island that's eatable. 
and had your boat arrived a few days later, you'd have found us lying dead upon the beach. Rob listened to this sad tale with real sympathy. But I didn't come here in a boat, he said. The men sprang to their feet with white, scared faces. No boat, they cried. So your shipwrecked too? No, he answered. I flew here through the air. And then he explained to them the wonderful electric traveling machine. But the sailors had no interest whatsoever in the relation. Their disappointment was something awful to witness, and one of them laid his head upon his comrade's shoulder and wept with unrestrained grief, so weak and discouraged had they become through suffering. Suddenly, Rob remembered he could assist them, and took the box of concentrated food tablets from his pocket. "'Eat these,' he said, offering one to each of the sailors. At first they could not understand that these small tablets would be able to allay their pangs of hunger, but when Rob explained their virtues, the men ate them greedily. Within a few moments they were so greatly restored to strength and courage that their eyes brightened, and their sunken cheeks flushed, and they were able to converse with their benefactor with calmness and intelligence. Then the boy sat beside them upon the grass and told them the story of his acquaintance with the demon and of all his adventures since he had come into possession of the wonderful electrical devices. In his present mood he felt it would be a relief to confide in someone, and so these poor lonely men were the first to hear his entire story. When he related the manner in which he had clung to the Turk while both ascended into the air, the elder of the two sailors listened with rapt attention, and then, after some thought, asked, "'Couldn't you carry one or both of us to America?' Rob took time seriously to consider this idea while the sailors eyed him with eager interest, and finally he said, "'I'm afraid I couldn't support your weight long enough to reach any other land. It's a long journey, and you'll pull my arms out of their sockets before an hour is up.' Their faces fell at this, but one of them said, "'Why couldn't we swing ourselves over your shoulders with a rope, then? Our two bodies would balance each other. We're so thin and emaciated that we do not weigh very much.' While considering this suggestion, Rob remembered how at one time five pirates had clung to his left leg and been carried some distance through the air. "'Do you have a rope?' he asked. "'No,' was the answer." "'But there are plenty of long, tough vines growing on the island "'that are just as strong and pliable as ropes.' "'Then, if you're willing to run the chances,' decided the boy, "'I will make the attempt to save you. "'But I must warn you that in case I find I cannot support the weight of your bodies, "'I shall have to drop one or both of you into the sea.' "'They looked grave at this prospect, but the biggest one said, we would soon meet death from starvation if you left us here on the island. So, as there is at least a chance of our being able to escape in your company, I, for one, am willing to risk being drowned. It is easier and quicker than being starved. And as I'm the heavier, I suppose you'll drop me first. Certainly, declared Rob promptly. This announcement seemed to be an encouragement to the little sailor, but he said nervously, I hope you'll keep near the water for I haven't a good head for heights. They always make me dizzy. Oh, if you don't want to go, then, began Rob, I can easily... 
"'But I do, I do, I do!' cried the little man, interrupting him. "'I shall die if you leave me behind!' "'Well, then, get your ropes, and we'll do the best we can,' said the boy. They ran to the trees, around the trunks of which were clinging many tendrils of greenish-brown vine, which possessed remarkable strength. With their knives they cut a long section of this vine, the ends of which were then tied into loops, large enough to permit the sailors to sit in them comfortably. The connecting piece Rob padded with seaweed gathered from the shore, to prevent its cutting into his shoulders. "'All right, then,' he said, when all was ready. "'Take your places!' The sailors squatted in the loops, and Rob swung the vine over his shoulder and turned the indicator of the traveling machine to up. As they slowly mounted into the sky, the little sailor gave a squeal of terror and clung to the boy's arm. But the other, although seemingly anxious, sat quietly in his place and made no trouble. "'Don't, don't, don't go, go so high!' stammered the little one tremblingly. "'Suppose we should fall!' "'Well, suppose we should,' answered Rob gruffly. "'You couldn't drown until you struck the water, so the higher we are... "'the longer you'll live in case of an accident.' "'This phase of the question seemed to comfort the frightened fellow somewhat, "'but as he said, he had not a good head for heights, "'and so continued to tremble in spite of his resolve to be brave. "'The weight on Rob's shoulders was not so great as he had feared. "'The traveling machine seemed to give a certain lightness and buoyancy "'to everything that came into contact with its wearer.' As soon as he had reached a sufficient elevation to admit of good speed, he turned the indicator once more to the east and began moving rapidly through the air, the shipwrecked sailors dangling at either side of him. This, this is awful, gasped the little one. Just shut up, you, commanded the boy angrily. If your friend was as big a coward as you are, I'd drop you both this minute. "'Now let go of my arm and keep quiet, if you want to reach land alive.' The fellow whimpered a little, but managed to remain silent for several minutes. Then he gave a sudden twitch and grabbed Rob's arm again. "'Suppose, suppose the vine should break,' he moaned, a horrified look upon his face. "'I've had about enough of this,' said Rob savagely. "'If you haven't any sense, you don't deserve to live.' He turned the indicator on the dial of the machine, and they began to descend rapidly. The little fellow screamed with fear, but Rob paid him no attention until the feet of the two suspended sailors were actually dipping in the waves, when he brought their progress to an abrupt halt. "'What are you going to do?' gurgled the cowardly sailor. "'I'm going to feed you to the sharks, unless you promise to keep your mouth shut,' retorted the boy. "'Now, then, decide at once. Which will it be, sharks or just plain silence?' "'I won't say a word. Upon my honour, I won't,' said the sailor shudderingly. "'All right. Remember your promise, and we'll have no further trouble,' remarked Rob, who had to work hard to keep from laughing at the man's abject terror. Once more he ascended and continued the journey, and for several hours they rode along swiftly and silently, Rob's shoulders were beginning to ache with the continued tugging of the vine upon them, but the thought that he was saving the lives of two unfortunate fellow creatures gave him strength and courage to persevere. 
Night was falling when they first sighted land, a wild and seemingly uninhabited stretch of the American coast. Rob made no effort to select a landing place, for he was nearly worn out with the strain and anxiety of the journey. He dropped his burden upon the brow of a high bluff overlooking the sea, and casting the vine from his shoulders, fell to the earth exhausted and half-fainting. Chapter 17 The Coast of Oregon When he had somewhat recovered, Rob sat up and looked around him. The elder sailor was kneeling in earnest prayer, offering grateful thanks for his escape from suffering and death. The younger one lay upon the ground, sobbing and still violently agitated by the recollections of the frightful experiences he had undergone. Although he did not show his feelings as plainly as the men, the boy was nonetheless gratified at having been instrumental in saving the lives of two fellow human beings. The darkness was by this time rapidly enveloping them, so Rob asked his companions to gather some brushwood and light a fire, which they quickly did. The evening was cool for that time of year, and the heat from the fire was cheering and grateful, so they all lay near the glowing embers and fell fast asleep. The sound of voices aroused Rob the next morning, and on opening his eyes and gazing around, he saw several rudely dressed men approaching. The two shipwrecked sailors were still sound asleep. Rob stood up and waited for the strangers to draw near. They seemed to be fishermen, and were much surprised at finding three people asleep upon the bluff. Er, where in the thunder did you come from?' asked the foremost fisherman in a surprised voice. "'From the sea,' replied the boy. "'My friends here are shipwrecked sailors from the Cynthia Jane.' "'But how would you make it to climb up the bluff?' inquired the second fisherman. "'No one ever did it afore, as we knows on.' "'Oh, that's a long story,' replied the boy evasively. The two sailors had awakened and now saluted the newcomers. Soon they were exchanging a running fire of questions and answers. Well, all wait, Rob heard the little sailor ask. Coast of Oregon, was the reply. We're about seven miles from Port Orford, by land and about ten miles by sea. Do you live at Port Orford? inquired the sailor. Ah, that's what we do, friend. And if your party wants to join us, we'll do our best to make you comfortable being as you're shipwrecked and need help. Just then, a loud laugh came from another group where the elder sailor had been trying to explain Rob's method of flying through the air. Laugh all you want, said the sailor sullenly. It's true, every word of it. Maybe you think it, friend, answered the big good-natured fisherman. But it's well known that shipwrecked fellas go crazy sometimes and imagine strange things. Your mind seems clear enough in other ways, so I advise you to try and forget your dreams about flying. Rob now stepped forward and shook hands with the sailors. I see you've found friends, he said to them, so I'll leave you and continue my journey as I'm in something of a hurry. Both sailors began to thank him profusely for their rescue, but he cut them short. That's all right. Of course, I couldn't leave you on that island to starve to death, and I'm glad I was able to bring you away with me. But you threatened to drop me into the sea, 
remarked the little sailor in a grieved voice. So I did, said Rob, laughing. But I wouldn't have done it for the world, not even to save my own life. Goodbye. He turned the indicator and mounted skyward to the unbounded amazement of the fisherman, who stared after him with round eyes and wide-open mouths. This sight will prove to them that the sailors are not crazy, he thought, as he turned to the south and sped away from the bluff. I suppose those simple fishermen will never forget this wonderful occurrence. They'll probably make regular heroes of the two men who have crossed the Pacific through the air. He followed the coastline, keeping but a short distance above the earth, and after an hour's swift flight, reached the city of San Francisco. His shoulders were sore and stiff from the heavy strain upon them of the previous day, and he wished more than once that he had some of his mother's household liniment to rub them with. Yet so great was his delight at reaching once more his native land, that all discomforts were speedily forgotten. Much as he would have enjoyed a day in the great metropolis of the Pacific Slope, Rob dared not delay longer than to take a general view of the place, to note its handsome edifices, and to wonder at the throng of Chinese inhabiting one section of the town. These things were much more plainly and quickly viewed by Rob from above than by threading away through the streets on foot, for he looked down upon the city as a bird does and covered miles with a single glance. Having satisfied his curiosity without attempting to alight, he turned to the southeast and followed the peninsula as far as Palo Alto, where he viewed the magnificent buildings of the university. Changing his course to the east, he soon reached Mount Hamilton, and being attracted by the great tower of the Lick Observatory, he hovered over it until he found he had attracted the excited gaze of its inhabitants, who doubtly observed him very plainly through their big telescope. But so unreal and seemingly impossible was the sight witnessed by the learned astronomers that they never ventured to make the incident public, although long after the boy had darted away into the east, they argued together concerning the marvelous and incomprehensible vision. Afterwards, they secretly engrossed the circumstances upon their records, but resolved never to mention it in public, lest their wisdom and veracity be assailed by the skeptical. In the meantime, Rob rose to a higher altitude and sped swiftly across the great continent. By noon he sighted Chicago, and after a brief inspection of the place from the air, determined to devote at least an hour to forming the acquaintance of this most wonderful and cosmopolitan of cities. Chapter 18 A Narrow Escape The auditorium tower where the weatherman sits to flash his reports throughout the country offered an inviting place for the boy to alight. He dropped quietly upon the roof of the great building and walked down the staircase until he reached the elevators, by means of which he descended to the ground floor without exciting special attention. The eager rush and hurry of the people crowding the sidewalks impressed Rob with the idea that they were all behind time and were trying hard to catch up. 
he found it impossible to walk along comfortably without being elbowed and pushed from side to side. So a half-hour's sightseeing under such difficulties tired him greatly. It was a beautiful afternoon, and finding himself upon the lake front, Rob hunted up a vacant bench and sat down to rest. Presently an elderly gentleman with a reserved and dignified appearance and dressed in black took a seat next to the boy and drew a magazine from his pocket. Rob saw that he opened it to an article on the progress of modern science, in which he seemed greatly interested. After a time the boy remembered that he was hungry, not having eaten a tablet in more than twenty-four hours. So he took out the silver box and ate one of the small round discs it contained. "'What are those?' inquired the old man in a soft voice. "'You're too young to be taking patent medicines.' "'Oh, these are not medicines, exactly,' answered the boy with a smile. "'They're concentrated food tablets, sorted with nourishment by means of electricity. One of them furnishes a person with food for an entire day.' The old man stared at Rob a moment and then laid down his magazine and took the box in his hands and examined the tablets curiously. "'Are these patented?' he asked. "'No,' said Rob. "'They're unknown to anybody but myself.' "'I will give you a half million dollars for the recipe to make them,' said the gentleman. "'I fear I must refuse your offer,' returned Rob with a laugh. "'I'll make it a million, then.' said the gentleman coolly. Rob shook his head. Money can't buy the recipe, he said, for I don't know it myself. Well, couldn't these tablets be chemically analyzed and the secret discovered? inquired the other. I don't know, but I'm not going to give anybody the chance to try, declared the boy firmly. The old gentleman picked up his magazine without another word and resumed his reading. For amusement, Rob took the record of events from his pocket and began looking at the scenes reflected from its polished plate. Presently, he became aware that the old gentleman was peering over his shoulder with intense interest. General Funston was just then engaged in capturing the rebel chief, Aguinaldo, and for a few moments both man and boy observed the occurrence with rapt attention. As the scene was replaced by one showing a secret tunnel of the Russian nihilists, with the conspirators carrying dynamite to a recess underneath the palace of the Tsar, the gentleman uttered a long sigh and asked, "'Will you sell me that box?' "'No,' answered Rob shortly and put it back into his pocket. "'I'll give you a million dollars to control the sale in Chicago alone.' "'continued the gentleman with an eager inflection in his voice. "'You seem anxious to get rid of your money,' remarked Rob carelessly. "'How much are you worth?' "'Personally?' "'Yes.' "'Nothing at all, young man. "'I'm not offering you my own money, "'but with such inventions as you have exhibited, "'I could easily secure millions of dollars in capital. "'Suppose we form a trust and place them on the market.' We'll capitalize it for a hundred million, and you can have a quarter of the stock, twenty-five million. That would keep you from worrying about grocery bills. But I wouldn't need groceries if I had the tablets, said Rob laughingly. True enough, 
but you can take life easily and read your newspaper in comfort without being in any hurry to get downtown to business. Twenty-five million would bring you a cozy little income if properly invested. I don't see why I should read newspapers when the record of events shows all that is going on in the world, objected Rob. That's true, but what do you say to my proposition? I must decline, thank you. These inventions are not for sale. The gentleman sighed and resumed his magazine, in which he became much absorbed. Rob put on the character-marking spectacles, and the letters E, W, and C were plainly visible upon the composed, respectable-looking brow of his companion. He's evil, wise, and cruel, reflected Rob as he restored the spectacles to his pocket. How easily such a man could impose upon people. To look at him, one would think that butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. He decided to part company with this chance acquaintance, and rising from his seat, strolled leisurely up the walk. A moment later, on looking back, he discovered that the old man had disappeared. He walked down State Street to the river and back again, amused by the activity displayed in this busy section of the town. But the time he had allowed himself in Chicago had now expired, so he began looking around for some high building from the roof of which he could depart unnoticed. This was not at all difficult in selecting one of the many stores he ascended by an elevator to the top floor, and from there mounted an iron stairway leading to the flat roof. As he climbed the stairway, he found himself followed by a pleasant-looking young man who also seemed desirous of viewing the city from the roof. Annoyed at the inopportune intrusion, Rob's first thought was to go back to the street and try another building, but upon reflecting that the young man was not likely to remain long and he would soon be alone, he decided to wait. So he walked to the edge of the roof and appeared to be interested in the scenery spread out below him. "'Fine view from here, ain't it?' said the young man coming up to him and placing his hand carelessly upon the boy's shoulder. "'It is indeed,' replied Rob, leaning over the edge to look into the street." As he spoke, he felt himself gently but firmly pushed from behind, and losing his balance, he plunged head foremost from the roof and whirled through the intervening space toward the sidewalk below. Terrified though he was by the sudden disaster, the boy still had wit enough remaining to reach out his right hand and move the indicator of the machine upon his left wrist to the zero mark. Immediately he paused in his fearful flight and presently came to a stop a distance of less than fifteen feet from the flagstones which had threatened to crush out his life. As he stared downward, trying to recover his self-possession, he saw the old gentleman he had met at the lake front, standing just below and looking at him with a half-frightened, half-curious expression in his eyes. At once Rob saw through the whole plot to kill him and thus secure possession of the electrical devices. The young man upon the roof, who had attempted to push him to his death, was a confederate of the innocent-appearing old man, it seemed, and the latter had calmly awaited his fall to the pavement to seize the coveted treasures from his dead body. It was an awful idea, and Rob was more frightened than he had ever been in his whole life, or ever has been since. But now the shouts of a vast concourse of amazed spectators reached the boy's ears. 
He remembered that he was suspended in mid-air over the crowded street of a great city while thousands of wondering eyes were fixed upon him. So he quickly set the indicator to the word up and mounted skyward until the watchers below could scarcely see him. Then he fled away into the east, and even yet shuddering with the horror of his recent escape from death, and filled with disgust at the knowledge that there were people who held human life so lightly that they were willing to destroy it to further their own selfish ends. And the demon wants such people as these to possess his electrical devices, that are as powerful to accomplish evil when in the wrong hands as they are in good? thought the boy resentfully. This would be a fine world if electric tubes and records of events and traveling machines could be acquired by selfish and unprincipled persons. So unnerved was Rob by his recent experiences that he determined to make no more stops. However, he alighted at nightfall in the country and slept upon the sweet hay in a farmer's barn. But early the next morning, before anyone else was astir, he resumed his journey, and at precisely ten o'clock of this day, which was Sunday, he completed his flying trip around the world by alighting unobserved upon the well-trimmed lawn of his own home. CHAPTER Nineteen. ROB MAKES A RESOLUTION When Rob opened the front door, he came face to face with Nell who gave an exclamation of joy and threw herself into his arms. "'Oh, Rob!' she cried. "'I'm so glad you've come. We've all been so dreadfully worried about you. And Mother?' "'What about Mother?' inquired the boy anxiously as she paused. "'She's been very ill, Rob, and the doctor said today that unless we heard from you soon, he would not be able to save her life. The uncertainty about you is killing her.' Rob stood stock still. All the eager joy of his return, frozen into horror at the thought he had caused his dear mother so much suffering. Where is she, Nell? he asked brokenly. In her room? Come on, I'll take you. Rob followed with beating heart and soon was clasped close to his mother's breast. Oh, my boy, my dear boy, she murmured. And then, for very joy and love, she was unable to say more, but held him tight and stroked his hair gently and kissed him again and again. Rob said little, except to promise that he would never again leave home without her full consent and knowledge. But in his mind he contrasted the love and comfort that now surrounded him with the lonely and unnatural life he'd been leading. And... Boy though he was in years, a mighty resolution that would have been credible to an experienced man took firm root in his heart. He was obliged to recount all his adventures to his mother, and although he made light of the dangers he had passed through, the story drew many sighs and shudders from her. When lunchtime arrived, he met his father and Mr. Jocelyn took the occasion to reprove his son in strong language for running away from home and leaving them filled with anxiety as to his fate. However, when he saw how happy and improved in health his dear wife was at the boy's return, and when he had listened to Rob's manly confession of error and expressions of repentance, 
he speedily forgave the culprit and treated him as genially as ever. Of course, the whole story had to be repeated, and his sisters listened this time with opened eyes and ears, and admiring their adventurous brother immensely. Even Mr. Jocelyn could not help becoming profoundly interested, but he took care not to show any pride he might feel in his son's achievements. When his father returned to his office, Rob went to his own bedchamber and sat for a long time by the window in deep thought. When at last he roused himself, he found it nearly four o'clock. "'The demon will be here presently,' he said with a thrill of aversion. "'I have to be in the workshop to receive him.' Silently he stole to the foot of the attic stairs and then paused to listen. The house seemed very quiet, but he could hear his mother's voice softly humming a cradle song that she sung to him when he was a baby. He had been nervous and unsettled and a little fearful until then, but perhaps the sound of his mother's voice gave him courage, for he boldly ascended the stairs and entered the workshop, closing and locking the door behind him.